Right, welcome to week 13. Last week we left off with the man, the woman in the garden and they knew good and bad, but in a bad way. And they were exiled east out of the garden into toward the land of the wilderness. So tonight I want to focus in and double down on knowing good and bad and then looking at what the east represents. The man and the woman, they know good and bad, and we see all throughout the rest of Genesis what it looks like for people to know good and bad in a bad way. They know Ra now in their hearts. And we see example after example of what it looks like for Ra or bad to play out in the lives of humanity with each of the stories that we come across in Genesis. The very next story in Genesis chapter 4 is that story of Cain and Abel, where God goes to Cain and says, if you do good, won't there be lifting up? But if you do not do good, sin is at the door. It's like a croucher. Its desire is for you. But Cain does what's good in his own eyes. He does raw and he kills his brother Abel. His brother's blood soaks into the ground and it cries out to Yahweh. And so Yahweh comes down and brings justice, all the while still showing mercy to the first murderer. Because God doesn't want to take life. He's not the sort of God who delights in death. Cain's descendant, Lamech, he kills a young boy and then he sings a song gloating over it. Genesis 6, you come across the sons of Elohim, which is a way to refer to the Elohim. The sons of Elohim see that the daughters of humanity are good in their eyes, and so they take them as wives. And the result of those unions are these mighty warriors who soak the ground in blood. And the ground, just like it did with Abel's blood, it cries out to Yahweh, and Yahweh brings the flood. After the flood, we see Ham do raw to his father Noah. After Noah, we come across the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon, where again, we see the hearts of humanity, that there is raw in the hearts of humanity. We again try to ascend to a place that doesn't belong to us. By the time you get to Abraham, there's like finally that glimmer of hope of maybe we've finally arrived at some good people. Maybe now we'll see some good. And we certainly get some glimmers of good, but it's also filled with a lot of raw. Abraham obeys God, but then immediately he starts talking like the snake and deceiving people and handing over his wife, abusing his slave girl. He keeps doing raw. A little bit of good, but I mean, his life is filled with a lot of raw too. His son Isaac does the same thing as his dad. By the time we get to Jacob, like <laughs> Jacob's life is a disaster. It's so messy with Jacob and everyone in his life doing raw to each other. But wait, the story continues with Jacob's sons. They conspire against Joseph, they try to get him killed, and then they resort to selling him 
as a slave, getting some money for him instead, just expecting that he'll die down in Egypt. In Egypt, Joseph becomes a slave, gets wrongly accused of assaulting a woman, gets imprisoned. Like, raw after raw keeps happening to this boy. And then this famine comes, and through God's provision and his provision of wisdom to Joseph, Joseph's able to save his family. The whole book of Genesis, as entertaining as these stories are, if we're honest, a lot of the stories in the book of Genesis are very disturbing. Like whether that is the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah or what happens to Jacob's daughter Dina. It is story after story of destruction, of people sinning against each other, devastation. Because that's what it looks like to live in a world where men and women know good and bad in a bad way. And now we live in the wilderness rather than a garden. But at the very end of the book of Genesis, through the mouth of Joseph and the hand of Moses, it says this, the very last chapter, almost one of the last verses, one of the last sentences in the book of Genesis. Joseph says this to his brothers who are now afraid that Joseph is going to kill them. He says to his brothers, as for you, you meant bad against me, but God used it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So what you intended for raw God used for good, to preserve life. Those words, good and bad, are not incidental at the end of the book of Genesis. Moses is beckoning us back to Genesis 3. At the very beginning of Genesis, it begins with this tree of knowing good and bad, tov and ra. And one of the last sentences is about tov and ra, good and bad. We're supposed to look back at that scene of the man and the woman taking from the tree of knowing good and bad and knowing all of the devastation that would follow and speaking those words over it. What you intended for raw, God will use for good. We live in a culture that is not very good at dealing with grief. If you have experienced extreme moments of grief, you've probably felt that before. We idolize comfort, and so that makes us really bad at grieving and at comforting people who are grieving because it's really uncomfortable. So many times when we do try to comfort people who are grieving, we try to find the silver lining to like justify how that bad thing could have happened. Like, surely there has to be some reason why. And a lot of times we, I mean, it leads us to try to diminish the bad, see it as like not that bad, or the idea of like, well, the ends justify the means. We try to find a silver lining. We try to diminish the badness to make it not hurt so bad. But the bad will always be bad. Sin will always be sin. 
The pain of the wilderness will always be painful because it is painful. Things don't work like how they're supposed to. God did not want this to happen. He does not want death and sin to happen. He grieves. He's the first one who grieves. So when we grieve the devastation of sin or just the brokenness of this world that we live in and being in the wilderness, we're really entering into the Lord's grief because he's already grieving. The bad is bad. But Yahweh has the power to break the power of Ra. He has the power to break the power of Ra and bad and evil. God intends good and he is not thwarted by humanity's evil. Instead, there are times when he uses Ra to bring about the good that he had always intended. And don't miss this. He does that so that we can see that no amount of our raw, no amount of our wickedness, no amount of the world's devastation can overcome or compromise his goodness. There are moments, thank God, that he uses bad things to bring about the good end that he had always intended. But that's not to provide us a silver lining and be like, oh, well, you shouldn't be sad anymore. He is sad. No, it's instead so that we have hope in the midst of our pain. So we have hope in this wilderness. We know good and bad now, but in a bad way. And in Genesis 3, humanity we see is exiled toward the wilderness, to the east of the garden. In the Bible, the biblical authors use geography to have theological meaning. So the east has a theological meaning. Remember that the garden was a prototype for, or like the proto temple and tabernacle. And the garden was essentially the holy place where the high priest works. In the middle of the garden is the holy of holies because that's where the tree of life is in God's presence. The man and the woman are exiled out of the garden but not out of Eden. So they're essentially exiled into, if you want to think of it this way, what is the outer court. When Cain raises up and strikes down his brother Abel, he is exiled out of Eden to the east. So the man and the woman are exiled out of the east and the door back to the garden is in the east. Then Cain is exiled to the east out of Eden. Later on, when we get to the Tower of Babylon, guess which direction they're going to build it? In the east. The east represents growing distance from Yahweh, getting further and further away. And then we get to Genesis 12, where we finally see someone going west. Abraham goes west, essentially in the direction of the garden in the imagination of the Israelites. He goes west and he finally comes to this place where he builds an altar. And it says that he builds the altar with Ai on the east and Bethel in the west. Bethel is west to him. And Bethel means house of God. 
AI is in the East, and AI means ruin. So he's caught between, or kind of in the middle of the house of God and ruin. And really his whole life is him kind of deciding, am I going to go east or am I going to go west? When his nephew Lot is looking for a land to live in, Lot looks east and sees Sodom and Gomorrah. Whenever the Israelites eventually came to the promised land, they lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And many times they rebelled against Yahweh. And over those hundreds of years, God sent prophet after prophet, warning them and pleading with them to turn back to him, to stop doing what was good in their own eyes and turn to him, to return to the house of God, to come back to the garden. But they keep going east. They keep sinning. And so where do you think God sends them when they are exiled? The people of Israel are exiled east into Babylon. They eventually come back to the land of promise, the Jews do. And hundreds of years later, after centuries of silence from God, there are magicians around Babylon in the east, and they see a star in the sky, and they follow the star west. And that star comes to rest over the birthplace of the Son of God. Decades after that, after Jesus has done years of ministry, on Palm Sunday, Jesus heads west into Jerusalem. He comes through the Eastern Gate. When Jesus is taken out of the city to be crucified, they crucify him west of the city of Jerusalem. And there at Golgotha, the place of the school, we see sin on full display. We see the raw of humanity on full display. That when we come face to face with God, we will try to kill him. We'll see him as bad. And so humanity put him to death. But what we meant for raw, God has the power to use for good. What we intended for death would instead be used for life. Jesus did die. And his death is something that we mourn every single year. With Lent, with Good Friday, with Maundy Thursday, his death is something to be mourned and grieved. But we serve a king who is able to break the power of our Ra and use it instead as a means to bring about good that he always intended. Only he has the power to do that. To take what it was intended for death and use it as the vessel for life instead. That the act of taking the one life of Jesus was instead used to give life to everyone who would believe in him. No amount of our raw can overcome and compromise his goodness. He is good. And one day, he will do away with all evil. 
He will do away with all of the raw in the world, and he will wipe away every tear. This is a God who is acquainted with grief. We serve a God who weeps. Like when he came to, when Christ came to the tomb of Lazarus, he didn't just tell Mary and Martha, his brothers, like, oh, don't be sad. Here's the silver lining. I'm going to bring him back to life. He didn't do that. He cried with them because he never wanted death to happen. It is grievous. Sin and the effects of living in the wilderness is grievous and he grieves. This is a God who inspires books like Lamentation. He literally had written a book just about lamenting. Did you know that 40% of the Psalms are about grief and lament? When we grieve the heartache of sin and the brokenness of this world, we're really entering into the presence of God in a unique way because he's already grieving. But there will be a day when he does away with all of the raw. There will be a day when he wipes away every tear. In Genesis 1 through 3, we see the continuity of the character of God. From the very beginning, he's always been the same. He has always been kind and gracious. It has always been by trust and love that we experience eternal life. I hope now that as you have come to the end of this study and you're now free to research everything you want to research to your heart's content, that you're able to look at Genesis 1 through 3 and really the book of Genesis and the whole Old Testament and the Bible and see how Jesus could claim that he was the fulfillment of it all. Jesus is the fulfillment of each one of these words. He's the point, the focal point of the entirety of the Bible. And if we want to know the extent of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and his life, death, resurrection, we need to know all of our Bible. We see at the very first pages that it is all about him. He is the word that created the skies and the land. He's the light of our world. Jesus is the fountain of living water. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, the giver of rest and restoration. He is the tree of life. He is the knower of good and bad. And he's not just made in the image of God. He is the image of God. He is the second Adam. He is true humanity. He is our true Ezra, our hope and our shield in battle. He is the promised seed of the woman. He is the snake crusher. He's the door back to the presence of God. He brings us back with him. And he is the God of resurrection. He meets us in tombs and in graves in places of grief. He makes the dust holy ground so that all who are in the dust and feel the pain of being in the dust can see him there with them.
He has not exempted himself from the pain of sinfulness. But he swallowed it on the cross. And he is the sort of God who can make a cross into a place of life and a tomb into a place of resurrection. That's the God we serve. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Genesis 1, we see that we are dealing with a totally different kind of God. And he is building a totally different kind of kingdom. Not a kingdom that doesn't experience bad things, but a kingdom that has hope in the midst of the bad. Because we serve a king who died and yet resurrected. We serve a king who wipes away our tears with scarred hands. And that is a king who is worthy of all of our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these 13 weeks that we got to set aside to study your word. God, I thank you and I praise you that you do not change. That from the very beginning, we were saved by grace through faith. That it was never a result of our works. So that our boast would only and ever be in your grace and your kindness, Lord. That you are the sort of God who chooses the dust. You are the sort of God who loves your enemies, who clothes their shame. Lord God, we love you. We praise you. Would you help us to love you more? Amen.